Well, good morning, brothers and sisters. I hope you're having a wonderful holiday season. As Chris said, we're uh, short three pastors this morning, so I have the honor of bringing the Word of God to us. We're going to be in Psalm 65. If you please turn your Bibles to Psalm 65. I'm going to read this, and then we'll pray. Psalm 65 says, For the choir director, a psalm of David, a song. There will be silence before you, and praise in Zion, O God. And to you the vow will be performed. O you who hear prayer, to you all men come. Iniquities prevail against me. As for our transgressions, you forgive them. How blessed is the one whom you choose and bring near to you to dwell in your courts. We will be satisfied with the goodness of your house, your holy temple. By awesome deeds, you answer us in righteousness, O God of our salvation. You who are the trust of all the ends of the earth and of the farthest sea, who establishes the mountains by his strength, being girded with might, who stills the roaring of the seas, the roaring of their waves, and the tumult of the peoples. They who dwell in the ends of the earth stand in awe of your signs. You make the dawn and the sunset shout for joy. You visit the earth and cause it to overflow. You greatly enrich it. The stream of God is full of water. You prepare their grain, for thus you prepare the earth. You water its furrows abundantly. You settle its ridges. You soften it with showers. You bless its growth. You have crowned the year with your bounty, and your paths drip with fatness. The pastures of the wilderness drip, and the hills gird themselves with rejoicing. The meadows are clothed with flocks, the valleys are covered with grain. They shout for joy. Yes, they sing. Father, thank you for this time with my brothers and sisters in your house. And Lord, I pray that as we meditate on this psalm together, that you, by your spirit and your word, would move us to erupt in praise to you. Because you are worthy of it. You are a good God. And it's only right that we would give you praise and honor and glory. So Lord, may that be the fruit of this time together. Please work that in each heart here. That they would leave here overflowing with abundant praise to your name. I pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, as we um, celebrate another year in the books, it's common for us to come to the year end and start thinking about all the things that we want to change and do different next year and resolutions and so on and so forth. But I wanted to take some time today with you to focus on the year we just went through and to think about all of the ways God has been so faithful to you and to me this year. There have been many, many blessings and joyous times in our church together this year. I've shared them with you. There's also been a number of trials and difficulties that we've walked through together. And my hope is that we'll leave today full of praise and thanksgiving to God for how he has yet again been so good to us in the highs and the lows and everything in between. 
And that, again, as I prayed, will be erupting in praise to our God. This psalm doesn't really have a clear context. Um, there's no known circumstance or complaint or trial or anything that's going on. Uh, the speculation is that it was probably a song that they sang at one of the feasts as they traveled up to um, Jerusalem, probably celebrating God's abundant harvest, maybe in the autumn uh, Feast of Booze. But I think that that's helpful for us because just like the psalmist, uh, whether things are going great in your life or whether things are a struggle right now, or maybe again somewhere in between, uh, this psalm stands no matter our circumstances. I hope you got a handout. There's three headings. I've just divided the psalm up into three headings, praising God as Savior, praising God as Sovereign, and praising God as Sustainer. And I learned in the first service I have too much content. So I'm going to be just referencing texts. So be ready to take notes and you can go look at them later. Or I talk too slow or both. I'm not sure. But I'm going to try to talk a little faster, go a little faster this time. Let's read uh, verse 1. There will be silence before you and praise in Zion, O God. And to you the vow will be performed. Now I'm in the NASB. Many of you may have another version, and many of the other versions say it a little different. They say, praise is due you, or praise is rightfully yours, or praise awaits you. And in my amateur Hebrew skills, it looks to me like it says, before you there will be silence and praise. Uh, the word that the NAS uh, translates silence is what the rest of the versions that you might have translate wait. And this first verse is just a banner over the whole rest of the psalm. All the rest of the verses are going to give us reasons why we should praise him. And so as the Jews headed to the feast, there was praise due to God. His glory was going to be seen and acknowledged, and it was only right. And it's the same for us today and tomorrow. And when you see him face to face, no matter what's happening in your life right now, praise is due him. It's rightfully his and we will be stopped in silence before him. Because all glory is his. All glory is his. If you want to just take some of those notes I mentioned, Isaiah 42, 8 is a verse where it says, I am the Lord, that is my name. I will not give my glory to another, nor my praise to graven images. Glory, all of it, is his. That's what you and I were created for. You were created for the glory of God. You can see that in Isaiah 43. All of his works were done for his glory. You can see that in Isaiah 48, 11, And I encourage you to go back and read those texts. And that's why Christ came, was for the glory of God. And we see that in John 17, 24, where it says, Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me be with me where I am so that they may see my glory, which you have given me. And I like that the NAS translates the word silence as silence because it brings out this idea of reverent praise. A reverent silence before him is praise in and of itself. It's a right response and one that we should have now because when we see him in one day, for sure, every complaint, every grumble, every angry accusation, every judgment of him that we make will all be silenced before him. And on the flip side, we're going to see him as he is and we'll be in 
awe of him and words will fail us and we'll be as silent for him for that reason as well. Job is a good example of this. Job is a great model for us in so many ways on how to deal with trials and suffering. He is. But he also struggled. And as the book goes forward, we see his struggle voiced. And again, I would love to turn to these passages, but just jot them down maybe. And I can tell you the context at least is that, or what, the, what it says is Job 13.3 is a place where we can see where he says, uh, but I would speak to the Almighty and desire to argue with God. Later on in verse 15 of Job 13, he says, I will argue my ways before him. In Job 19.6, as he's talking with his counselors, he tells them to put their hands over their mouth, to be silent, because they were wrong. But then we come to Job 38 through 42, and you probably know these chapters. They're magnificent. In Job 40, God comes on the scene, and he begins to answer Job, and Job ends up himself in silence before God, praising him for who he is and what he's done, even in that trial. Job 40, verses 4 through 5 says, Behold, I am insignificant. What can I reply to you? I lay my hand on my mouth. Now he's laying his hand on his mouth. Once I have spoken, and I will not answer, even twice, and I will add nothing more. In Job 42, 1 through 6, Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do all things, that no pur purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore, I have declared that which I did not understand, things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. He said, I have heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore, I retract and repent in dust and ashes. Habakkuk 2.20 is another text that says, But the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth be silent before him. And if we're not silent and reverent praise before him, we will be erupting in praise towards him as well as we see in other texts like Psalm 145.21 where it says, My mouth will speak the praise of the Lord and all flesh will bless his holy name forever and ever. And all of this happens in Zion, it says, which for us in application, theologically, it's used figuratively in a number of ways in the New Testament, including for God's spiritual kingdom, the church of God, the heavenly Jerusalem we see in Hebrews 12. So for us here today, brothers and sisters, this is for us as we gather today to be silent and to give him praise because it's due him. And it says next that the vow will be performed and this is just an offering. It's something given or dedicated. It's an oath or a promise. Psalm 50, verse 14 says, Offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving and pay your vows to the Most High. It's due to Him. We've seen praising Him in silence, praising Him with our voice, and now this is praising Him in deed as well. And it's sometimes hard for us to see here in this life on this earth Circumstances are difficult many times that blurs our vision or blinds us completely sometimes as we focus on things seen instead of what's unseen and on the circumstances instead of him. But before him, in silence, we will see clearly and praise him.
that he's a wise God with perfect judgment, that he's a good God, and that the vow and the praise is due to him. It goes on in verse 2, O you who hear prayer, to you all men come. And it doesn't just say that he heard prayer in an instant or in a circumstance. This is who he is. He's the God who hears prayer. It's part of his character. In Christ, it says in Ephesians 3.12, we have boldness and confident access through faith in him. Because in chapter 2, that same book, it says that he broke down the barrier of the dividing wall and established peace between us and him and reconciled us to himself. And that we now have access by the Spirit to the Father if we are in Christ. And he's able to do far more abundantly than we could ever ask or imagine. All through the scripture, he's hearing their prayers and answering it. He's an attentive God. He's an intimate God. Proverbs 3.32 says he's attentive and intimate with the upright. This transcendent God that we're here to praise and worship today, he hears your prayer. I hope that that puts you in a level of awe as you meditate on that right now, because I think we take it for granted. I think we just go about our lives and we forget life-changing truth like this. Psalm 8, 3 through 4 is where it says, when we consider God and his creation, what is man that you take thought of him? It's an unspeakable blessing and privilege that you and I have through the gospel of Jesus Christ to have access to the King of Kings and that he would hear you. And because he's this God who hears prayer, it says, to you all men come. To you all men come. And so what was written to Israel makes clear here in other parts of this psalm and through the scriptures that the door is thrown wide open for any to come. All can come to this transcendent God. The Jews worshiping at this festival, Gentiles, you and me, He's approachable and he's available, and we know that now through Christ. If you're here today and you have not put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, the scriptures tell us that apart from faith in him, you do not have this confident access. There's a really striking passage I came across early in my walk with him where in Proverbs 28, 9, it says, He turns away his ear from listening to the law. Even his prayer is an abomination. One commentator wrote that the hypocrite and ungodly who pray under the constraint of present necessity are not heard. For they cannot be said to come to God when they have no faith founded upon his word. But that can change. It can change the one who comes to him. He will not cast out, he tells us in John 6. And so if you're here today and you do not know him, come to him. And repentance and faith to him all Men, come. You can come now, or it says in the scriptures, there is a day coming when all men will come to him. All will bow the knee. All will confess he is the Lord to the glory of God the Father, whether in heaven or earth or under the earth, it says in Philippians 2. All the mess around us, all that needs to be sorted out, all that needs to be made right, all that needs to be corrected will be 
And those who are in Christ have an inheritance waiting for them, it says in Ephesians 1. But those who are outside of Christ have wrath, affliction, and removal from his presence. Isaiah 66, 18 says, For I know their works and their thoughts. The time is coming to gather all nations and tongues, and they shall come and see my glory. But as we come and we are before him and we see him, we see an issue. Verse 3 says, Iniquities prevail against me. As for our transgressions, you forgive them. And so here we have David writing, the man after God's own heart saying, iniquities prevail against me. You might have a version that says, iniquities overwhelm me, overwhelm or prevail. The, the iniquity where there is guilt, it's affliction, it's blame, it's perversity, it's evil, it's sin. In his light, we see ourselves more accurately and we see our state. He's the man after God's own heart, yet he sees himself clearly and rightly and acknowledges his spiritual condition as one that is prevailed against and overwhelmed. We are not good. We are not righteous. My favorite one verse text to portray this, I go to it often in my thinking, is Colossians 1.21. It's just one verse, but it's very graphic. And it describes you and me apart from the Lord Jesus Christ on our own. It says that although you were formerly alienated and hostile in mind and engaged in evil deeds, sums it up. That's who you and I either are if you're not in Christ or were if we're in Christ. And it's staggering. The idea of alienation, we're strangers. We're excluded from him. Foreigners. Hostile is enemy enemy of him as Israel and Hamas right now are enemies against each other that's the picture of you and me against this holy God who is due our praise it says we're hostile in mind it's how we think about him and that leads to evil deeds evil thoughts we, we, we act based off of what we think and believe we think and believe hostility and evil then we're going to engage in those types of acts if you are not in Christ, this may sound a bit surprising to you. You may be saying, not me, I'm pretty good. I'm not hostile towards him. But he doesn't judge us based off of our standard. He judges us based off of his. And so we can do something as simple as think through the Ten Commandments and how many lies have you told? How much have you stolen? How many times have you been angry? How many times have you looked with lust? How many times have you coveted? How many times have you dishonored a parent? And we should see very clearly that we are continuous lawbreakers continuous lawbreakers. All of those are rebellious acts and they overwhelm us spiritually. They prevail against us in his court of law. They're too mighty for us. They're too strong for us. They crash down on us and we are powerless to withstand them. We can't. There's nothing we can do. They're too much for us. God demands perfection and we're far Far from it, we're in desperate need of a Savior. It's our only hope. And it's why we need Christ and his grace and his mercy. 
That's our iniquities. They prevail against us. There's also the evil of the world. Many times David was in much trouble, not because of some sin that he created, but just because of the evils of this world. We're in a cursed world. He was constantly being mistreated, persecuted, and so are we at times. He says transgressions. When he says transgressions, that's talking about rebellion, that we're in rebellion against him. Psalm 36, one says transgression speaks to the ungodly within his heart. But here, in spite of these things, the next thing we read is that he forgives them. He forgives them. He makes amends. He makes atonement. He covers them over. He pacifies his justice. He cancels them out. He cleanses us. He pardons us. These are verses I want to definitely read to you about God's forgiveness. Numbers 14, 18. The Lord is slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness, forgiving iniquity and transgression. But he will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generations. And so what should we do? We should confess our sins. Psalm 32, 5 says, I acknowledge my sin to you and my iniquity I did not hide. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the guilt of my sin. And then listen to these on how he forgives you. Isaiah 43, 25 says, I, even I, am the one who wipes out your transgressions for my own sake, and I will not remember your sins. He doesn't call them to mind. He chooses not to remember them anymore. Micah 7, 18 says, Who is a God like you who pardons iniquity and passes over the rebellious act of the remnant of his possession? He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in unchanging love. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. Yes, you will cast all their sins into the depths of the sea. In Psalm 103, verse 11 through 12 says, For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his loving kindness toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. And so Psalm 32, one can say, how blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. This is our God. Instead of us being prevailed against, he prevails against our sin and forgives them and covers them and doesn't call them to mind anymore and cast them into the depths of the sea. And as far as the east is from the west, other verses say he casts them behind his back. That's how he treats those who come to him in Christ. And so we should praise him. You should praise him. And it goes on, it says, how blessed is the one whom you choose and bring near to you to dwell in your courts. Blessed is happy, we should be happy as forgiven sinners, we should be happy as forgiven sinners who he has chosen and he's bringing near to him to abide with him. We should be happy. We are blessed. He chose Abram. He chose Israel. And on down to you and me today in Christ, he chooses us. Psalm 33, 12 is a place you can see where he chooses Israel. 
2 Peter 1.10, we've been going through that as a church body where he tells us to be certain about his calling and choosing us. And you can just turn to John 6, maybe on your own time, I would like to read it. But John 6 has many passages where we see that all that the Father gives to me will come to me. And that none of us can come to him unless the Father has granted it to us. In John 6, 37 through 40 and 65 and so forth. One commentator says, we come into communion with God, not recommended by any merit of our own, nor brought in by any management of our own, but by God's free choice. Blessed is the man whom thou choosest and so distinguishes from others who are left to themselves. Whom he chooses, he causes to approach, not only invites them, but inclines and enables them to draw Near to him, he draws them. And remember, he didn't choose Israel because of anything in them, and he doesn't choose us because of anything in us. We're not worthy. We just saw our transgressions prevail against us. Our iniquities prevail against us. Deuteronomy 7, 6 through 7 is where he tells Israel, he didn't choose them because of anything in them. They weren't anything special. He just loved them. And 1 Corinthians 1, 26 through 31 tells us the same thing, where he says, For consider your calling, brethren, that there are not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise, and God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong, and the base things of the world and the despised God has chosen, the things that are not, so that he may nullify the things that are, so that no man may boast before God. And he says, but by his doing, you are in Christ Jesus. And if that's not enough, he's forgiven us, he's chosen us, and now he brings you near. He doesn't just leave you out there like we would do to somebody that, we, you know, we say we've forgiven somebody, we have something against somebody. Yeah, okay, we're good, but you just stay over there. I'll, uh, we, let's have some distance between us. You, you start. That's not what God does. He brings you near to dwell with him. Ephesians 2.13, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were formerly far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. We who were dead in our transgressions and sins, he's made alive and chosen us and brought us near and it says to dwell with him in his courts, to be near to him in his place where he is. We don't deserve it. We haven't earned it. But he's chosen you and brought you near to be able to abide in him. And we know in Psalm 84, 10, for instance, that a day in his courts is better than a thousand outside. He says, I would rather dwell in the tents of wickedness Sorry, I'd rather dwell at the threshold of the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. We're no longer strangers and aliens, but we are members of God's household. And so he says next that we will be satisfied with the goodness of his house, with the goodness of your house. To be satisfied, brothers and sisters, is to have plenty, to be filled, to be full. We don't need anything else. We don't desire anything else. We have all that we need. We have our portion. 
Psalm 73, 25 through 28 says, Whom have I in heaven but you, and beside you I desire nothing on earth? My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. My portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you will perish. You have destroyed all those who are unfaithful to you. But as for me, the nearness of God is my good. I have made the Lord my refuge that I may tell of all your works. Those who dwell in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty and with a long life he satisfies them and lets them hear his salvation. He lets them see it. The idea in the New Testament is contentment, that we would be content with whatever we have Paul was content in whatever circumstances he was in. Hebrews 13 tells us to be content with whatever we have because he is good. He's a good God. His house is good. His provision is good. It satisfies. His presence satisfies. Dwelling with him is enough. One commenter commentator said they shall be satisfied here the psalmist changes the person not he shall be satisfied but we shall be satisfied he says which teaches us to apply the promise to ourselves and that by an act of faith to put our own names into them we shall be satisfied with the goodness of his house even of his holy temple and so ask yourself today is that where you're at in contentment Are you satisfied? Are you dwelling with him? This should lead us to praise because he's a good God. It's rightfully due to him. The second point is that we can also praise God as sovereign. It goes on to say, by awesome deeds, you answer us in righteousness, O God of our salvation. You who are the trust of all the ends of the earth and of the farthest sea, He was called the God who hears prayer. Now he's called our salvation. And of course, Israel had seen his miraculous works time and time again as he did all kinds of things to save them and draw them out of Egypt, splitting the Red Sea and and so on and so forth. Isaiah 45, 7 says, God is the one forming light and creating darkness, causing well-being and creating calamity. He does all these things. He does what he wishes. He's a good sovereign ruler over his creation. He does awesome deeds, fearful deeds. Psalm 66, three through five says, say to God, how awesome are your works because of the greatness of your power, your enemies will be feigned, will give feigned obedience to you. All the earth will worship you and will sing praises to you. They will sing praises to your name. Come and see the works of God who is awesome in his deeds towards the Son of Men. I know sometimes we long today to see some of those awesome, miraculous deeds that we read about in the scriptures, but I want to encourage us now, brothers and sisters, that while you may not have seen the Red Sea parting, you see his awesome deeds in your life every day, all the time, all the time. When you see him make sinners into saints or change people from the inside out or make people who love sin love righteousness or 
make fornicators or idolaters or adulterers or effeminate or homosexuals or thieves or covetous or drunkards or revilers or swindlers new creations in Christ. And such were some of us. You've seen him work out scenarios in perfect ways for your good over and over again. You've seen him grant you and other saints peace in situations that they wouldn't normally have it. You've seen him take trials and tribulations in your life and others and turn them for good as he prunes us and makes us fit for heaven. His answers to prayer can also sometimes include rebuke and discipline. He disciplines those he loves. But don't forget that we can thank God for those unanswered prayers too. They were answered. They just weren't answered the way you wanted them or I wanted them. And it's all cause for praise to him because he withholds no good thing. And because you can see he answers in righteousness, it says. He answers in righteousness. He's good. He's just. He's right. He's accurate. He's fair. He's correct. He's honest. He's equitable. He's even. His standard is righteousness and perfect perfection, and that's who he is. The Lord is righteous in all his ways and holy in all his works, it says in Psalm 145, verse 17. So please don't forget this about him, brothers and sisters. Don't forget, he is righteous. And when he answers, he answers in righteousness. That's who he is. It's what he does. So we should praise him. Praise him. Some of us are in green pasture. Some of us are in the valley of death. Some of us are somewhere in between. And in any case, we have an awesome God who has overcome death for us. He's chosen us. He's drawn us near to abide with him. He satisfies us with the goodness of his house. He hears our prayer and answers them in awesome deeds. And he does it righteously. And so he's the trust of all the earth, it says. You who are the trust of all the ends of the earth and of the farthest sea. The idea of trust is to have confidence or security. Psalm 40, verse 4 says, How blessed is the man who has made the Lord his trust. Versus so many other things that we can put our trust in these days that's not worthy, that's not this God. We look to so many other things, the creation instead of the creator, time and time again. He's made many wonderful things to be enjoyed, but not to be our trust. He is the trust. People and relationships are to be enjoyed according to his design, but they're not our trust. Food, entertainment, stuff that we can enjoy. We just had Christmas to be enjoyed, but not our trust. Money, possessions, bank accounts, things that we often look to and put our trust in, but they're not to be our trust. Recognition, reward, approval of others, all fine and dandy, not your trust. When we're not abiding with him, we aren't satisfied with the goodness of his house and we look to other things to satisfy us and to put our trust in, but it's misplaced. He is the trust. It says of those in the farthest sea, there's nobody excluded. There's nobody beyond his grasp. There's nobody free to look elsewhere. 
One commentator said, for the, for the care he takes of all his people, however distressed and wherever dispersed, he is the confidence of all the ends of the earth, that is, of all the saints of the world, all over, and not theirs only, that were in the seed of Israel, for he is the God of Gentiles as well. And so if you're here today looking for help or hope in anything else other than the Lord your God, and your trust is somewhere else, it's in the wrong place. It's in the wrong place. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Don't lean on your own understanding, Proverbs 3 says. Isaiah 26, 4 says, Trust in the Lord forever, for in the Lord we have an everlasting rock. And Psalm 115, 11 says, Trust in the Lord, he is your help and your shield. And so we come to verse 6, who is, says, Who establishes the mountains by his strength, being girded with might. What exists, he made. He's the creator. He established it, and it continues. Psalm 95, 3-7 says, For the Lord is a great God and a great king above all gods, in whose hand are the depths of the earth. The peaks of the mountains are his also. The sea is his, for it, is, it was he who made it. And his hands formed the dry land. Come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker, for he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hands. Every beast of the field, everything is his. He owns it. It says he does it by his strength. He's girded with might. He's not just the creator He's also the governor. Verse 7, he who steals, stills the roaring of the seas, the roaring of their waves, and the tumult of the peoples. In um, pagan mythology, the sea connotated chaotic and life-threatening powers. However, the Lord is not just the creator of these things. He's the ruler over these things. He's keeping them. Now, I love this picture of him in perfect control over all things. He's intimate with us. He hears prayer and he answers righteously. He's the trust, it says, and he's in control of all things that are outside of our control. The oceans, the waves, people, nations, all of creation bow to him and his rule and his providence. What's out of control, he calms. What's roaring, he settles. And it's not just the creation in terms of waves. It's also the people. Take note of that. And the tumult of the people. Some of your Bibles may say nations. And he's shown his power over nations time and time again and just like seas roar and are frightening and out of our control, people are described the same way in the scriptures. Isaiah 17, 12 through 14 says, Alas, the uproar of many peoples who roar like the roaring of the seas and the rumbling of nations who rush on like the rumbling of mighty waters. The nations rumble. 
They rumble on like the rumbling of many waters, but he will rebuke them and they will flee far away and be chased like chaff in the mountains before the wind or like whirling dust before a gale. And I don't know about you, but when I look out at the world, I see a lot of tumult, a lot of roaring, a very tumultuous people we are. The word is loud, noisy, disordered, commotion, agitation, turmoil, all jockeying in the, in the world for personal gain and fighting physically and verbally for power and control and money. And I don't know about you, but I just wish sometimes you just wish you could all just, you just comment, you just make peace. You see that slogan everywhere. People desire peace. And we're going to elect a president here this year, and that person will promise to fix it all and bring peace. And they won't because they can't. Psalm 2 is where we read that the nations are in an uproar, devising vain things and taking their stand against the Lord. And he laughs and scoffs at them and tells them, I have installed my king. He's mighty. He rules. He calms. He's in control. And so we have also another good text in Matthew 8 where you can see, maybe just going to jot that down. Matthew 8, 23 through 27 is where you see him doing both together. The disciples are frightened and they're tumultuous and they're struggling and they're fearful and Christ calms both the waves and the sea and them at the same time. I don't know where you're at in your life right now. Each of us has a myriad of things that we're dealing with that are outside of our control. And a lot of them are roaring and they're terrifying people and circumstances and we can't control them, but we try to. And in so doing, we try to take God's rightful place, God's rightful place, and we misplace our trust, and that never goes well. Leads to angst, leads to worry, leads to fear, leads to struggle. We're often men and women of little faith. But my hope is, as we meditate on this psalm together, that you'll put your trust back in him and look to him, the trust of your life, With him, there's peace in the storm. And so verse eight, they who dwell in the ends of the earth stand in awe of your signs. You make the dawn and the sunset shout for joy. It should bring us to awe as we meditate on these things about our God. It should bring you to awe. My prayer, my hope is that it would bring each of us individually to a level of awe at our good, good God. Let's go to point three. Point three is that we can also praise God as sustainer. The last part of this psalm says, you visit the earth and cause it to overflow. You greatly enrich it. The stream of God is full of water. 
You prepare their grain, for thus you prepare the earth. You water its furrows abundantly. You settle its ridges. You soften it with showers. You bless its growth. You have crowned the year with your bounty and your plains. Your paths, sorry, drip with fatness. The pastures of the wilderness drip, and the hills gird themselves with rejoicing. The meadows are clothed with flocks, and the valleys are covered with grain. They shout for joy, yes, they sing. And so this last heading, that he's a good sustainer, we can praise him for this. When it says that he visits the earth, given the agrarian setting and the crops and the fields and the harvest and the multiple mentions of water, um, the visiting the earth in context here in this psalm is likely the rain with which God supplies the vitally necessary water that brings life and crops and harvest. And often throughout the scripture, water is also used metaphorically for spiritual truths. And after celebrating Christmas, you can't help but think about how Christ came and how abundantly he enriched and how faithful he was. The spiritual parallels are often seen in scriptures with water. John 7, 38 says, He who believes in me, as the scripture said, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. John for is the living water that satisfies the woman at the well. John 6 is where he says, he who comes to him will never thirst. Psalm 1 is, remember, the tree planted by the water is the one who bears fruit. The water of God giving and bringing life materially and spiritually. And in both cases, look what happens with God. I want you to pay attention to the words that he gives us here. Just pay attention to the various words. He says words like overflow, greatly enrich, full of water, bless the growth, crowned with bounty, dripping. It's like overflowing. It's it's so saturated, it's dripping out. Clothed, covered. Where God is, or where God visits, he's not just adequate, he's abundant in provision. Abundant. And it's all prepared by him. He provides for it, he prepares it. He abundantly blesses. It's just a picture of a pasture or a garden or a field, rather, having all the water it needs, all of it attentive, attentively cared for by him, intimately cared for by him. He does it all. To where it comes to verse 11, you have crowned the year with your bounty. And I hope that you and I again today would concur with that statement as you meditate and you think back to how he's cared for you this year and all the small ways of life, all the little things that he's done for you, all the things that if you're too busy, you miss it, but that he has intimately 
cared for you and provided for you in the smallest details all through the year. He's so good. He's so good to you. He's so good to me. He always is. He can't do anything other than be good because it's who he is. And again, this year, he has crowned our church as a whole. He has crowned each of us individually in here with bounty. Bounty is goodness, kindness, happiness. It's good things. It's satisfaction. And he's crowned it. We're like the victors enjoying in the spoils of victory, but we didn't do anything to deserve it or take part in it. We're bandwagon jumpers or moochers. I like, um, as it goes on here, in verse 11, the NAS says, your paths drip with fatness. I think it's the NIV that says, your carts overflow with abundance. Again, there's just so much here that just points to these, um, the, the vastness of his blessings. All these superlative type words where it's just, it's so much, it's too much, it's overflowing, we can't keep it in. That's kind of what the picture looks like next where things are dripping out. Pastures of the wilderness drip. Carts are dripping, paths are dripping. It's overflowing. He's enough. It's like those pictures we see in the Gospels of the fish sinking their boats or all those leftover baskets of food after he fed all the thousands of people. Wherever God goes, he leaves tokens of his mercy behind him and his paths shine, said one commentator. And so as we wrap up here, it says... The, the creation starts to rejoice. Will you rejoice in this good God? The hills gird themselves with rejoicing. The meadows, what about the meadows? Well, they're clothed. The valleys, they're covered. And so they shout for joy and they sing to our God. The crops and the cattle, their two main livelihoods, Handled by him. He does it in overflowing ways, in great ways, in full ways, in abundant ways, in crowning ways. That's how he provides. Isaiah 42, 10 through 12 says, Sing to the Lord a new song. Sing his praise from the end of the earth. You who go down to the sea and all that is in it, you islands and those who dwell on them, let the wilderness and its cities lift up their voices. The settlements where Kedar inhabits, let the inhabitants of Selah sing aloud. Let them shout for joy from the tops of the mountains. Let them give glory to the Lord and declare his praise in the coastlands. Matthew Henry said, let all these common gifts of the divine bounty, which we yearly and daily partake of, increase our love to God as the best of beings and engage us to glorify him with our bodies, which he thus provides so well for. And so those are our three headings. As we conclude, just meditate with me again. Just go, let, let it run through your head again. 
Praise is due him. Praise awaits him. It's rightfully his. We will be silent before him. He's intimate with us. He's intimate with you. He's near. He hears your prayer. He forgives our transgressions and iniquities that prevail against us. He's chosen those of us here in Christ. He brings us near. He dwells with us. He satisfies us with goodness because he's a good God. He answers us in awesome deeds of righteousness and their righteous judgments. That's what he does. It's right. He's trustworthy. He is the trust. He establishes and controls all things and he provides an overflowing, full, abundant ways for you and for me. Dripping overboard. So praise him. Praise him. He is good. Before heading into a new year and thinking about all the next stuff, stop and just be silent before him and remember how he has so faithfully dealt with you and me this year. Think back to your salvation. Think back to before you knew Christ, if you're in Christ, and all the wickedness that we had that prevailed against us, and yet he covers and atones for it and forgives Think of all the ways he's providentially provided for you and for me and let it move us to erupt in praise. It's the right response for such an awesome God. And I just want to take a moment to to address those of us here because I know there's many in our body who have had trials this year. It's been hard. It's been very hard. Not every year is a bumper crop for sure. But I just want to encourage all of us this morning that It's the same God. He's still this God. And he's with us. He's with you in trouble and through it. He's there. He's taking care of all of it the whole way through. He's working in it and through it for his glory that he will have and he won't share. And he's preparing you and me. He's producing something through it. He's perfecting our faith He's purifying us. He's drawing us near to himself. He's bringing us near. And Hebrews 6 is a passage I would have loved to talk about this morning too, where it says that he is a sure, steadfast hope for us, an anchor for our soul in this year to come. I don't mean this at all to minimize the suffering. I know it's hard. I know, but it's in these times where we need to grab hold of these truths that much more tightly. If you're in the trial, if you're in tribulation, just meditate and gaze upon this God because he's all of these things. He's a good God. Praise awaits him. And I pray that our praise to him today and tomorrow and this week and this month and this year will somewhat match his provision for us. The abundant, overflowing, full, great, crowning, dripping overboard, oozing out of us praise for this great God this year and today. Okay? Let me pray. Lord, thank you for this time in your word. Thank you for this psalm. Thank you for being this God. You are an amazing God.
and we love you, and we desire to praise you and worship you as you are rightfully due. So, Lord, please move our minds and our hearts um, along these truths, that they would fill us, that they would rule us, that they would ooze out of us, and it would affect our witness for you and our relationship with you. But Lord, be honored and glorified. We love you, and we pray in Christ's name. Amen.